On the 16th of July 1945, the world's first nuclear detonation was conducted in the Hornada del Muerto desert in New Mexico, ushering in a new age for humanity. Nuclear weapons became a touchstone in global politics and culture during the Cold War, but have since receded into the background. However, with the Russo-Ukrainian war escalating tensions between Moscow and NATO powers, the specter of nuclear war is looming larger than it has in generations. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion on politics, international relations, and current affairs. Today, we'll give you the city view on nuclear deterrence and proliferation. Welcome to the City Politics Podcast. Today, we are going to be discussing a topic that's been on, well, people's minds probably for the first time in a long time and possibly even for the first time in their entire lives. We're going to be talking about nuclear weapons. Uh, We're joined in the studio today by James Wirtz, Professor of International Politics and former Dean of International Graduate Studies at the Naval Postgraduate School. His work focuses on intelligence, deterrence, the Vietnam War, and military strategy and innovation. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you. Uh, We also have with us Rebecca Davis-Gibbons, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Southern Maine and former Associate at the Project on Managing the Atom at Harvard's Kennedy School. Her research focuses on the nuclear non-proliferation regime, arms control, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, and Global Order. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. It's really great to have two really informed guests to talk about this, you know, really sort of quite frightening, uh, but incredibly interesting topic. But before we get into our conversation, we have to do our first segment, which is ripped shamelessly from the pages of Reddit. It's Explain It Like I'm Five, because as our listener knows, I'm a bit of a dummy, and I need things explained to me in simple terms. Uh, So we're going to start off with you, James. I'm going to ask you a basic question. What is nuclear deterrence and how does it work? Nuclear, I'll explain it to you as if you were five. So, David, if you go in the refrigerator and you and you take ice cream when I'm when I'm not looking, I will slap your hand. Now, I can't prevent you from getting the ice cream. But if I if if you take it, you cross that red line, I will punish you in some way. Right. Nuclear deterrence is the same same idea. If the target of the threat, the deterrent threat, does something that crosses that red line into prohibitive behavior, what I am what I am saying is that I will use nuclear weapons to punish you. And there are a variety of ways of doing it, but what I will do is I will inflict costs more than the gains you will get. So if for a five-year-old, I will slap your hand until you really regret ever getting that ice cream. Whatever pleasure you got out of the ice cream is going to be eliminated by it's really more than a hand slap. This might be more like I will take a baseball bat and beat you with it. And that's really what we're talking about. In fact, Thomas Schelling, uh, one of the one of the great uh, nuclear strategists of our day in the early 1960s, used to use examples of deterring children from things when talking about deterrence. Well, that really answered the question well, James. I, I now completely think I understand what nuclear <laughs> deterrence is in very sort of broad strokes. So thank you very much. Uh, so. Rebecca, it's your turn. What is the non-proliferation regime and how does it work? The nuclear non-proliferation regime, I think of it as as sort of a web of treaties and agreements that all aim to protect the world from both dangerous nuclear material, like fissile material, uh, material, the main ingredient of nuclear weapons, and nuclear weapons themselves. And so we often say that this regime, which again, regime is a fancy word to say a lot of norms and practices and agreements and treaties, is based on a treaty known as the Treaty on the 
non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. And you'll see that written as MPT usually for short. That was a treaty that was largely drafted by the Soviet Union and the United States in the 1960s because they started to realize it took them a little while. It took two decades for them to come together on this to realize that it would be better if there were no additional nuclear weapon states. There are already, at that point, three other states, China, the UK, and France had tested their own weapons, but they decided friend or foe, it is better if other countries don't develop these nuclear weapons. So they established this treaty that says there are five states that are allowed to have nuclear weapons, the three I mentioned, plus the Soviet Union and the US, and all other states in the international system that join this treaty are not supposed to have them. So that was the main goal of the treaty, non-proliferation. And non-proliferation means the lack of a spread of this, these nuclear weapons. Um, and it's been highly su successful as a treaty overall, I would say. There's only five states in the international system today that are not in that treaty. So that's India and Pakistan, who have nuclear weapons. Israel also has nuclear weapons. Uh, North Korea, which famously withdrew from the treaty. And then the newest state in the international system, South Sudan, has not joined, but I presume at some point they will. Great. Thank you very much. That explains uh, what we're talking about when we speak about non-proliferation. There's a lot of food for thought already coming out of this. Uh, explain it like I'm five. But before we can get into it, I need to hand you over to Constantine. He's going to ask you 10 questions from the crystal ball. Constantine, take it away. Right. Thank you so much. This is going to be tough for you guys. Really, really, really tough questions. And the only thing you can do is say yes or no. But uh, we promise uh, we'll elaborate on all of this later on in much detail. I'm going to start with Rebecca in the first five questions. Uh, and, you know, for each question, then uh, move on to James. And then, you know, for the final five questions, we're going to switch the order around so that James also gets a bit of the benefit of the hindsight in the end. Okay. Let's do the crystal ball. Question number one, Rebecca. Will we live to witness the use of nuclear weapons in war? No. James, yes or no? No. Question number two. Will there be more nuclear weapons in the future? Rebecca? No. James? Yes. Question number three. Will there be more countries holding nuclear weapons in the future? Yes. James? Yes. Question number four. Will future historians be surprised at how little attention was paid to nuclear weapons after the Cold War ended? Rebecca, yes or no? Yes. James? No. Question number five, Rebecca. In the future, is it likely that a non-state actor will acquire a nuclear weapon? Yes or no? No. James? No. And now um, let's switch the order around and start with James. Question number six. Are nuclear weapons unique when compared to other weapons of mass destruction? James? Yes. Rebecca? Yes. Question number seven. James, do nuclear weapons have a role beyond deterrence? Yes or no? Yes. Rebecca? No. Question number eight. James, are nuclear weapons a source of stability for the global order? Yes or no? Yes. Rebecca? No. Question number nine. Can you envisage an instance when nuclear weapons could be justifiably used other than self-defense? James? Yes. Rebecca? No. Question number 10, James. Would the world be a better place without nuclear weapons? Yes or no? Yes. Rebecca? Yes. All right. Thank you very much. This must have been torture, I know, but uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, we usually start with the areas of... Um, 
sort of where where you guys have uh, differing you know, points of view and uh, and then move on to the other things and uh, I think one thing where you had a disagreement is uh, simply by um, sort of thinking and, and discussing uh, or answering the question about the proliferation of nuclear weapons in the future uh, James said yeah there will be more nuclear weapons in the future and Rebecca said no why do you think so James I think the world is continuously reminded of the the impact of nuclear deterrence in the Ukraine right now, we're getting a pretty good lesson that the if the Russians didn't have nuclear weapons, this would have ended a long time ago. I mean, the 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 Russian military was so vulnerable to air attack that you could have easily seen the U.S. or NATO uh, launching sort of a, a, a Gulf War one or two style air attack where you would attack with conventional weapons, you paralyze the air defense, you take out the air defense, and then the the, the armor on the ground is completely vulnerable. I mean, you could have you could have ended this in a matter of of a couple of weeks, really. I mean, realistically, a couple of weeks. But what the, the U.S. was actually deterred by the nuclear threats issued by Putin. So this gives a lesson globally that, hey, you know, nuclear weapons are effective. They do cause pause, even in a great power competition, even among nuclear similar powers that are armed with nuclear weapons, it sort of limited the scope of that conflict. So it, there is a, a lesson there, I think, that won't be ignored by certain powers. Iran comes in mind. The Saudis could come in mind. If the Iranians, the argument there is that if the Iranians get a nuclear weapon, it's sort of start a proliferation cascade. The Saudis will immediately want one because there's a simmering Sunni-Shia, you know, dispute out there and that, and that this, might, this might become nuclearized. So I think that on the one hand, the recent events have demonstrated the efficacy of nuclear deterrence, because not that anybody in the United States would likes to talk about it, but we were, in fact, held at bay by that nuclear, the threat of nuclear use. And I don't necessarily disagree with anything that James said. I think uh, coming out of Ukraine, we're going to have a continued kind of bifurcation of opinions about nuclear weapons. Those who are against them are going to show that, you know, Russia having nuclear weapons allowed them to go in and do all this damage and potentially war crimes. Um, and they're going to say, we shouldn't have these. And then other people are going to say, this makes de nuclear deterrence even more important than ever. Uh, but I would say, I would also go to Iran in answering this question I and would say that much depends on what happens with the Iran deal, if we are able to get back to a deal. Because if Iran is constrained in the fissile material that it's able to create, the amount of fissile material it has, then that I think makes a big difference. If, if Iran breaks out, I agree. I mean, the leader of Saudi Arabia has said they will seek nuclear weapons if Iran gets them. There's also recent polling in South Korea that 70% of South Koreans would like to get their own nuclear weapons. So I'm not saying that there's not a desire by some states, but if, if certain mechanisms like the nonproliferation regime and like the Iran deal can work, I think it's possible that we we could have fewer nuclear weapons moving forward, but it's all very contingent. One other thing, you know, people look back on the, you know, the, the brave, the, you know, the reasonable brave and, you know, measured Ukrainian decision to get rid of their nuclear arsenal. You know, strictly speaking, they probably couldn't have maintained it. They didn't really have the technical capability to keep it going for much longer, but they did give it up. Uh, and received security guarantees from a lot of the parties involved in this conflict, and uh, it didn't pan out for them. So there, these are messages that you just, no matter what scholars might say, no matter how we might interpret them, I think they carry a meaning that you just can't argue with. So that was really interesting. And one of the things that struck me 
about the dis discussion about nuclear weapons that's been going on right now is how little discussion we've had about nuclear weapons. Uh, as I sort of James was saying before we started recording, you know, some some young people are just encountering nuclear weapons for the first time, uh, and this leads to sort of a question about why haven't we been paying more attention uh, to nuclear weapons in the international system since the end of the Cold War. <laughs> No, that's a great question and one that I grapple with a lot. I, I Every year I teach a class for undergraduates on nuclear weapons. I always do a kind of intro survey and it's just, who do you think has nuclear weapons? How many? And just the answers are so wildly disparate. You know, people know about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and that's about the extent of it. And I think, you know, we, after the Cold War and this idea that the West or the U.S. won um, and we didn't need to worry about these weapons anymore, um, these weapons also are not as much in pop culture in the way that they are. I teach a class on WMD in the movies and there's plenty of movies to choose from when I'm looking at say the 1980s in a way that there's not more recently. And I think something that concerns me is just when I think about this question is that modern life is extremely complicated. And most of us have so much on our plate that kind of, unless you're working on this day to day, like James and I are, you might not have the bandwidth to even research this, to have an opinion in it. And this area anyway, is one that it can take a lot of time to kind of break into and feel that you have confidence um, in, in speaking about it. And so I think there is this sense that the community has um, makes it difficult for outsiders to kind of break into. You guys aren't children of the Cold War. But I was. And you, you got to understand is that we really lived under a, a daily. We lived under a nuclear sword of Armageddon, sword of Damocles hung over our heads. And that was very palpable. But what happened at the end of the Cold War is nuclear weapons law began to lose their political and military significance and salience. You know, at the height of the Cold War, the Soviets and the U.S. each had about 10,000 strategic nuclear weapons pointed at us. And we're down to 1,500 today. Right. That's a huge reduction. And for years, I've argued, this is what nuclear disarmament actually looks like. Now, disarmament advocates don't like that because there's no agreement to disarm. There's no plan to disarm. But basically, as nuclear weapons use, lose their utility in politics and in the military matters, you get less and less of them. They're expensive, hard to maintain, et cetera, et cetera. So there's just slowly and slowly shrinking. In fact, there was a critique for a long time that arms control actually put a floor, not a ceiling, on nuclear weapons because both the U.S. and the Soviets, Russians, were willing to cut faster than the arms control treaties were taking into limits. So that 30-year, very, very strong trend in interest, really interest, political and, and military interest in nuclear weapons, has now reversed. Okay, And there were signs of reversal uh, in the last few years in, in a variety of ways, but the pendulum is now beginning to swing the other way, that nuclear weapons are now increasing, as you know, we just said, in their political and military salience and significance, and small things like the Chinese for a long time were very modest in their nuclear modernization and acquisition programs, and now that seems to have taken a turn, that that buildup's now going to occur. So in that scenario, nuclear weapons for 30 years were not particularly salient right? They weren't particularly important, but now they're becoming more important. And that's why I answered that question of why would historians be surprised? I don't think so. That they would say this reduction in salience, it's really the, the reduction in great power competition and issues where nuclear weapons might not matter. When that was reduced, there's less interest in it, right? How, what real role, it was really, although it was possible, I can think of one good time, you might have wanted to use nuclear weapons against Al-Qaeda, uh, there really was, it was really hard to use nuclear weapons against terror cells, right? 
So, but that that great the, the rise of great power competition, you get a rise in in the interest in nuclear matters. So that raises the issue: are nuclear weapons weapons of great power competition? You know, and maybe we're ending. It, it's is it a bellwether of changing environment right now? I just want to add something on the salience point because I, I agree that the sort of political and military salience has has gone down and now maybe reemerged. But along with that reemergence is also, I think, the salience of nuclear weapons effects, right? And the destructive nature of nuclear weapons. And like you mentioned before, David, a student, you know, saying these things can destroy a city. And so I think the fact that that information will become more salient in some ways balances against it becoming more salient as something that's politically and militarily useful and that there's going to be people on both sides of that. And so I'm thinking these future historians are going to think that maybe we were nuts for having even 1,500 deployed nuclear weapons. And so from that perspective, they're going to think all oh, these humans were just living in this time where an accident could lead to such destruction. And, and hopefully we live in a time where we think, well, that's nuts, but maybe not. I agree. I think the fact that that, that general trend was towards the disarmament and it was long standing and significant right and it withstood insults it withstood the north korean nuclear test right uh it, it withstood the pakistans and indians uh testing nuclear weapons pakistanis and indians in 1996 testing nuclear weapons so it was long standing and strong i think the historians will say boy you missed an opportunity that you really needed to f you, you were close but I think the opportunities, it's now gone. In general, historians are going to have a lot to say about the 1990s and what went wrong and what did went right and what we could have done and all the missed opportunities. And nuclear weapons are just one aspect of that. Yeah, but, but Nirvana was very popular. So we had that going for us in the 1990s. So one of the things that's come out of this conversation, I think, needs to be addressed because you both agreed on this, that nuclear weapons, there's something unique about them, even when compared to other weapons of mass destruction, which I would classify as, you know, your biological and chemical weapons. Uh, is it just the factor that they're so so much more destructive, right, that they can you know, wipe out a city? Is this what makes them particularly unique or is there something more uh, in inside nuclear weapons that makes them special in the arsenals of great powers? When Bernard Brody first started thinking about the impact of nuclear weapons on war, and, and others have made this argument that what we really we really don't know what a full scale nuclear we have no way of even imagining if we all sat here for the rest of our lives and imagined what would that aftermath be like we really couldn't uh, imagine the hellish existence that would be there. But so what Bernard Brody said is what what, what you really get what the way the image we have. And Mueller said the same thing. The image we really have is World War II levels of death and destruction. And what Brody, Bernard Brody said in early days, what, what he found as really the real change, and these, are, these aren't fusion weapons, these were fission weapons, relatively low yield. You could get World War II levels of destruction in a matter of maybe days or weeks, not years. So you could inflict that level of destruction on an opponent opponent in a matter of days. Now, with fusion weapons, you could do that in a matter of hours. If you have enough of them, it's a matter of enough of them. And remember, we had 10,000 of them pointed at this, this, this Soviet bloc. But you could really get sort of beyond catastrophic levels of destruction instantaneously or in a long afternoon. The speed with which you could execute just a massive amount of destruction does make them different. And I think, I mean, even though I said I teach a class on WMD in the movies, I'm not a fan of the of the WMD term. And I think, you know, chemical weapons don't necessarily fit that category. And then the other part of nuclear destruction is, of course, the radioactivity that remains. And so I wanted to encourage people who are interested in this. Um, Walter Pincus, the longtime 
um, Washington Post journalist has a book that came out last fall called Fallout. And he has some really powerful and detailed descriptions about what happened in the Marshall Islands um, after the U.S. tested um, thermonuclear weapons there and gives, just gives you a sense of the long-term damage. You know, some of the thyroid cancers don't show up for something like 10 to 20 years for people there. So it's also, I mean, of course, the radioactivity is a part of what differentiates these weapons from other weapons. Great. So when we were talking about nuclear weapons, we're talking about probably the only weapons we have that are civilization ending, uh, that they would change our way of life in a way that we wouldn't be able to bounce back from perhaps ever, uh, or at least within sort of a lifetime of a, or a generation of human beings. Well, that makes them particularly terrifying. I have a, a question for, for, you, for you guys, and that's about, uh, it sort of it, it elaborates, it builds on what you just said, um, both about the sort of the, the destructive potential, um, but also the functions of, um, uh, of nuclear weapons, as well as the issue of uh, proliferation. So I was asking myself if, um, you know, if, uh, if nuclear weapons have this sort of powerful deterring force, um, um, in, if they sort of grant countries almost immunity to do all sorts of things in, in conventional warfare, just by virtue of having one of these uh, weapons, um, why don't more countries actually acquire them? Uh, is it because they, they actually think that uh, they have a moral sort of obligation to not do it because of the destructive potential? Uh, is it because of cost-benefit calculations, because both of you hinted at how difficult it is to maintain them and to, to sort of to, to develop them, or is it maybe also technical constraints? It, it, they, they might want them, they might even think that they would be beneficial and they would sort of, um, they would outweigh the costs, um, but um, we just don't have uh, the, the technology to do it. The answer is yes. It's yes. There's one answer to all those questions. No, I think the non-proliferation community, Rebecca will talk about this. They have struggled for a long time about what, why do states acquire nuclear weapons? Why don't they, right? Uh, and there are a variety of reasons. You also alluded to the stability-instability paradox. The stability at the nuclear level, like a nu nuclear balance or a mutual situation of mutual assured destruction, opens the door for instability at lower levels uh, in conventional operations. We see that in Ukraine today. That is an example of the stability instability paradox at work that the nuclear standoff allows uh, makes it safe literally for war to occur at lower levels uh, of violence you saw that maybe people made that argument about the vietnam war that sort of thing so that these phenomena exist but you're absolutely right S some states make the decision that it is in their national interest that their security would be improved by acquiring these things but luckily for us the vast majority of those states have made the decision not to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think we know that something like 30 plus states had at least explored the idea of pursuing nuclear weapons in the early age, in the earlier nuclear age, and many of them did not. And they joined the MPT, that treaty that I talked about earlier that entered into force in 1970. And so I do think that treaty has had a constraining effect, but it's not just because that treaty exists. It's because that treaty exists with agreements that allow international inspectors to come and look at the fissile material that countries have. So there's these safeguards. It's not just signing up to a treaty, right? There are consequences of signing up to that treaty. If a country is found to be out of compliance with those safeguards, then they can get referred to the UN Security Council. And that's what happened with Iran. And that's why Iran faced these rounds and rounds of sanctions, because they were 
uh, referred by these inspectors who had gone in from the International Atomic Energy Agency. An argument I make, I have a, a forthcoming book that looks at the history of the non-proliferation regime. And I focus a lot on the role of particularly the, the United States. And I, it's not probably shocking to hear, but the U.S. has been very instrumental in trying to persuade countries to join the MPT and also to not develop nuclear weapons. So there were times when countries in the U.S. sphere of influence were doing activities that maybe went against the MPT and the U.S. could either use inducements or coercion to change their cost-benefit analysis. One thing that worries me now is that in general, the nuclear weapon states in the MPT, for all of their different disagreements, have tried to maintain the MPT and have worked together. But I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine does do something to undermine the legitimacy of the MPT because they attacked a non-nuclear weapon state. So the future, the past doesn't, isn't necessarily a prelude to the future in terms of the MPT. And, you know, and Rebecca just alluded to something I think is very important. When people think of the MPT, they say, oh, this is to prevent the bad guys from getting nuclear weapons or the wannabes, right? But it really enables those states who don't want nuclear weapons to give them up because they can actually formally, you know, there's a way of, of the international community to acknowledge this. There's a framework for their participation. There's a framework for them to still have, you know, a nuclear power plant or nuclear medicine and still and still uh, demonstrate their, their the fact that they're not going to use this to get a nuclear weapon. So it's enabling those who don't want it not to have it. It's it, it does a better job at that, actually, than it does at preventing those who want it from getting it, right? But I think we lose track of that in, in the in when we talk about the non-proliferation issue. How do you think our thoughts on nuclear weapons are going to change in the aftermath of the invasion of Ukraine? We're just going to see um, increased polarization on both sides. So I've talked to people, friends who work in um, the nuclear enterprise in the United States, and they will say, this just shows nuclear deterrence is more important than ever. And you're seeing some of that in the, the Biden's nuclear posture review, which didn't make great changes to U.S. declaratory policy about nuclear weapons. Um, and then I think people who want to get rid of these weapons will be even more motivated to get rid of them. I do want to mention that on that side, you have several non-nuclear weapon states that are part of a new treaty that entered into force last year in 2021, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So you already had this great divide over disarmament, even within the non the MPT community. And so I think this will galvanize, as I said, people on both sides of that divide. In terms of dealing with nuclear weapons, there's three approaches, right? Deterrence, we talked about disarmament, which Rebecca just mentioned, and denial. That's that's the idea that, hey, you could really integrate these weapons into a war fighting kind of capability and, you know, and, 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 and use them effectively on the battlefield. And these three elements have sort of waxed and waned in importance uh, in American foreign defense policy since the advent of nuclear weapons. And since the end of the Cold War, disarmament was on the rise, right? Disarmament was the dominant sort of uh, perspective in American nuclear policy. I mean, the Obama's Prague speech where he says, from now on, the goal of American nuclear policy is disarmament. Maybe not in our lifetime, but it's going to happen. Right? I think those days are over. I think what you're seeing is that disarmament is now going to be eclipsed by deterrence. And there's even hints out there of more of a denial of more of an integration into uh, warfighting capabilities. You know, what you what the next sort of evolution in nuclear weaponry is sort of the miniaturization of nuclear weapons with the robotics revolution that you get smaller nuclear payloads, nuclear weapons on smaller delivery systems, and that you could use them sort of a nuclear precision strike. So it's a way to get, uh, you know, you know, a thousand tons of TNT on a specific target 
while minimizing collateral damage. That sort of impulse is there. I'm not sure we have the physics for that, but there is a sort of rumor out there that the Russians are very interested in new kinds of fusion weapons that pack a lot of punch in a small package or, or generate boutique effects, you know, electromagnetic pulse, maybe uh, radiation effects, uh, concentrated blast, that sort of thing. So that's where the, when the Cold War came to an end, that's where we sort of, the thing had rested. And is that the next sort of rung in the nuclear arms race? We only had a brief time to talk with our guests today, but I have never enjoyed being terrified so much. We'd like to thank both of our guests for taking the time to speak with us. If you'd like to know more about nuclear deterrence and strategy in general, check out Strategy in the Contemporary World, which James Wirtz co-edited and is now in its seventh edition. I can tell you from personal experience, I've read it cover to cover, and it is invaluable to any student of global politics. And you also need to order Rebecca's new book coming out from Columbia University Press called The Hegemon's Toolkit, U.S. Leadership and the Politics of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Regime. And you should know, you must follow her on Twitter at rdavisgibbons. And speaking of Twitter, don't forget to follow us at The City Politics, at Convos, and of course, at GD Blunt. This has been the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. A big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova, and to Cambio for the music. Man, nuclear weapons back in the news. This is like living in the 1960s. I feel like I should be putting on bell-bottom jeans and listening to Pink Floyd. Stay groovy, everyone. Peace. Peace.